Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian lit. This week, my new hobby, collecting, refurbishing, refinishing, well, not really refinishing. Well, <laughs> antique typewriters, you get the gist. Right. Why have the convenience when you can have the suffering? <laughs> because it, it types very nice things. And what Matt has sent me of what he's typed so far looks great. It's very, he sent me like a, a calendar for Tipsy Tolstoy stuff. And man, looks like a movie script. Look, we finally like look like hour. professionals. Took me like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> our air table unprofessional bad unprofessional. written on a typewriter it's like we're movie stars that's right <laughs> and i'm cameron lalana and i have nothing to report this week other than i went to a flea market earlier today and in my my joy of seeing so many relatively inexpensive and weird things i almost bought a banjo i can't play the banjo but i really thought maybe i should learn <laughs> it's only you 40 dollars but you could i you could i'll think about it next week i, I, I decided I to hold off should. for now all right, well, I'll keep you updated on that, on the, on the Banjo Saga. I am still holding my breath for a hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> we need to find you a hurdy-gurdy. I want one. I think they're actually quite expensive. That might be hard. That's the problem, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, we'll, we'll see about that. If anyone out there got a hurdy-gurdy for cheap that you're trying to offload, email me, tipsytolstoy <laughs> at gmail.com. I will become a collector of weird and antique things that I cannot use or maintain. It will be great. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you this, but I don't think there's a huge overlap between the Tipsy Tolstoy listening community and the uh, LARPing community, which is, I you assume, where 90% of the Hurdy Gurdy players are. <laughs> I, I call upon my audience to prove Cameron wrong. <laughs> the fool. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, if you, if you remember both communities, please email us at tipsytolstoy.com. I will take be this sure to acknowledge you. Hey, Siri. Hey, Siri. Can you remind me one year from now? <laughs> yeah. How's it going? Uh, no, I was that trying in. to re have Siri remind me about the hearty gurdy wager, but instead, one year from now, Siri's going to remind me, fucking listen to me, Siri, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's good enough. I'm sure I'll know what she's talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely sure you will, you will figure it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is the podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our weeks with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, I am very excited to report back that we are finalizing up, finishing up, finalizing either of those, our series on Grossman Stalingrad. It's been a 10-parter. I have felt every single part deep inside me. It has been just a, just a roller coaster. It but truly has. Mostly the drop feeling that you get in your stomach. Right. Yeah, that was this was a rough one. It was a rough and one were... and Grossman really I did not appreciate this ending. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, it may not be entirely Grossman's fault, but we'll get around to that when we, a little bit later of what yeah. we mean. Before we move ahead, we wanted to extend a quick thank you to some of our new patrons. Um, we may have mentioned them before, but just uh, off the top of my head, I couldn't remember if we thanked them. And I, of course, would rather thank someone twice than not thank them at all. So we wanted to extend a quick thank you to our most recent patrons, Elizabeth and Jacob. Thank you both so much. What are you, what are you drinking this fine eve? Okay, so I wanted to celebrate the fact that we finished a little over three months of work on Stalingrad with champagne. However, I have been, as if you listened to the last episode, sick recently, so I didn't have any alcohol in the house except for my cooking sake, and that didn't feel quite 
uh, festive enough. Also, I need it for cooking. So I went down to my local corner store and they didn't have any champagne. However, they did have the champagne of beers, Miller High Life. So I'm kind of <laughs> Miller High Life as the celebratory beer in classic tipsy Tuesday fashion. But as an actual drinking beer, I have a Lagunitas Hazy Wonder, which is not a craft beer. However, Lagunitas does do a lot of really interesting stuff, and it is a relatively local brand to where I am. And I've never had a Hazy Wonder before, so I am enjoying the citrusy, citrusy IPA. How about you? What are you drinking today? I am drinking an old fashioned that I made. It's a uh, very nice. I call it. Fa- it's like fancy Jack and Coke, really, is what it is. Um, <laughs> not really like that. I got a a, a nice Sazerac rye. To celebrate the end of Stalingrad, mix it up with three dashes, Angostura bitters, a mm. little bit of simple syrup, and an expressed orange peel. Uh, oh, baby. In there. And my spherical ice that my fridge makes, or freezer there makes, it. which is... It's still astounding. Astounding that technology has advanced this far. This would have ended the Cold War. <laughs> the Soviets would have been like, you can make spherical ice? This place sucks. Yeah, <laughs> that would have ended it. I don't think we had to shoot that high. Uh, Khrushchev was super impressed by Pepsi syrup and corn. I we <laughs> yeah. This, uh, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay. Before we get into the book today, we do not have any context. However, we do have some book recommendations. I wanted to recommend two things to you. First of all, uh, both of these things we've actually covered on the podcast, so you can find links to them in our show notes. I want to recommend first of all. The Unwomanly Face of War by Svetlana Alexeyevich, and secondarily, uh, the book Vasiliga Maligana by Alexandra Kolontai that also has two other short stories in it, both uh, both of which we've covered. Someday I'd actually like to go back to Vasilisa, Vasilisa Maligana because there are two short stories which I enjoyed a great deal but we didn't talk about. But anyway, the reason why I'm recommending these two is to talk more about the experience of women in the war, because although uh, uh, there are a number of Grossman's characters are women, uh, specifically women on the front line is something that he doesn't touch on a ton, unless, as you may have heard in the last couple of episodes, they're, you know, like the beautiful girls in the Signals division, which is not, you might understand, not exactly the most uh, in-depth analysis of women on the front lines. This part does challenge that a little bit. There are we do experience uh, more inner life of the women on the front lines, or at least one particular woman. Uh, but and that's something I want to talk about more later in the episode. Something we both noted. But if you are curious about a the experience of women in the war, uh, definitely check out the book, The Unwomanly Face of War, and also our podcast covering it. And then also Vasilisa Maligina, because I think there are that is obviously written in the early Soviet period, where the politics are much more socially radical. I will say, uh, in terms of, like personal relationships. So as a contrast in the like kind of shift i guess kind of shift rightward of like personal politics in the soviet union I, not sort of super rightward but more towards like a traditional sort of understanding of gender roles by this time i think it's an interesting contrast and a worthwhile one but that's all i've got for today my book recommendation for today for the good people is vasily grossman's life and fate <laughs> Yes. You thought you made it to the end of Stalingrad, as did I, and then I read the last chapter and I thought, my guy, you cannot do this to me. And that was when Matt realized, when every time I've said that, that Life and Fate is a continuation of Stalingrad, that was a completely literal statement in the, set, in the sense that Life and Fate is literally a, a plot continuance of Stalingrad. The problem <laughs> is that when people talk about Life and Fate, they don't say it in that way, I don't think. They don't say it like it is literally the second part of this book. They say as if it is a book that was perhaps inspired by this book. 
No, it's the yeah. same thing. It's the same <laughs> characters. I couldn't believe. I was like, wow, this is going to be a masterclass in storytelling if he can wrap all of this up in like 60 pages here. No, he didn't. No, and he in fact, really there's didn't. evidence... There's evidence to suggest he was never even trying because Stalingrad and Life and Fate may have at some points been the same book before, you know, the necessity of publishing split them up into two different stories. I hate the necessity of publishing. I would absolutely be cackling if we were like halfway through the series. Could you imagine? <laughs> I truly cannot. This would be this would be one of the most unhinged works of literature that I would love the deepest if this was if Stalingrad and Life and Fate were one single book. I don't think I can handle it though because I finished this and I was like, "Oh my god, this was like definitely one of the longest books that I've read besides War and Peace. I don't know mm-hmm. what else I've read that's longer than that." So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be demoralizing if you're like, okay, here's <laughs> like 900 more pages to go. <laughs> Did I mention there's new characters that I can introduce you to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe with good reason, but we'll talk more about that a little bit later. For now, let us talk about the last parts of this novel. Uh, there are two major things to follow. The conflict that was set up last time, keep in mind that we were following the Soviet troops who are the Red Army who have crossed the Volga, the troops of Rodimtsev's Guards Division, as well as especially a particular battalion led by Filyashkin, who have taken up residence, so to speak, in a train station, and many characters we know and love, Vavilov, namely, are King. in this, as well as Kovalyov. <laughs> God, I love hey. him. God, favorite, favorite boy. Favorite boy. Yes. I mean, he's an old he's an old man, but like favorite, yeah. favorite character. Right. He, I think, could be my favorite character. Yeah, I it's hard with uh, Krimov, Ivan Krimov, also up there for me. But mm-hmm. anyway, so we, we are also follow the Germans for a while who are getting ready to attack this station, although they are fully expecting that the war is basically over. There's no reason to really risk our lives at this point. So as you might expect, around two in the afternoon in the, in the following the same day that we followed in our last episode, the Wehrmacht attack the, the train station. Well, actually, the Wehrmacht attack broadly all these new troops who have uh, crossed the Volga and are now taking up position after pushing into the city. However, the train station, Filyashkin, is getting at the worst. And it's noted that Filyashkin's battalion is, in fact, cut off. So most of the other groups fighting, at the very least, are able to receive, if not telephone wires, at least runners. But the telephone wire is down. In the, so the person in charge, in this case, Lieutenant Colonel Yellen, can't even get any messages through. He has no idea even if Filyashkin's battalion is still there because the last three soldiers they tried to send a, a praise would happen were all killed. So they can't get anyone near without being killed. There's no phone lines. They have no idea what's going on. At this point, if the Wehrmacht are able to crush Filyashkin's battalion, it's going to be disastrous for the rest of the Soviet troops there because if they're able to push through the train station, that will more or less collapse the left flank of the troops who are set up, which will allow them more or less a pincer maneuver on the on the right flank. Uh, and the right flank is the, the stronger of the two. But if they are able to destroy both, that's going to push them all the way back to the Volga itself. And if they're back to the Volga, it's going to be hard for them to fight, not to speak of being reinforced, for example, if they're already fighting on the banks. So this is going to mean that this whole operation is going to be a failure. This part we follow, uh, we follow the chain of command, interestingly. So we, we actually, we go from Yellen, Lieutenant Colonel Yellen, to the leader of the Guards Division, Rodimtsev, who reports to uh, Chuikov on the other side of the Volga, and Chuikov re- reports to Yeremenko, Yeremenko being the commander of the Stalingrad front. And as you, as you hear from each one, that you hear the orders being passed up, 
and how they react to it and what they order. And it's, it's an interesting piece of storytelling, but I want to highlight this, this quote, which also continues to its natural, to natural conclusion. A report written on the page of a notebook went from a regimental command post to a divisional command post. From there, it moved onto the army command post where it was typed out. Next, a signals officer carried the report along with three carbon copies across the Volga to front HQ. Another signals officer called Moscow by radio telephone. Teleprinters at the front signal center began to clatter. A thick packet with five seals was put ready for a special courier. He would leave at dawn by Douglas to deliver it to the general staff. The burden of this report was very simple. After a brief lull, the Germans had resumed their offensive. I don't know if it's meant to be comical, but it is kind of a like a slightly, I say, humorous laying out of how information is passed along, you know, Army Command. Slowly. Slowly, yeah. Very slowly. So going from the perspective of bouncing around all these commanders, we go over to Filyashkin and his division, or his battalion, I should say, who are in the middle of it. It opens up with Filyashkin fantasizing about the various ways he might escape this war alive, fantasies which allow him to shack up with Lina Gnatyuk, who he spent a night with previously, or returning home to his wife and children, you know, and it's known that most of the other men in the battalion are doing something similar. And this is... is narrated very gently and very uh, well by uh, in, in saying each of the 300 men in the battalion created their own picture of a fortunate outcome to the war their lives would be happy and fulfilling happier it went without saying than in the past some thought about moving from their village to the district town others about moving out to a village some thought about their wives vowing to treat them more gently some wondered how their wives were managing now if they were in difficulty, they should go to the market and sell a pair of trousers or a smart jacket. When the war was over, it would be easy enough to replace them. Some thought about their children. One resolved to do all he could to help his young Masha qualify as a doctor. It was Filyashkin who was first to understand that his dreams were doomed to die with him. Everything was only too clear. He had lost telephone and radio contact with his regiment. Tanks and then infantry had broken into his rear. The German mortar and artillery fire was devastatingly accurate. Filyashkin loaded and cocked his pistol, releasing the safety catch. After that, he felt less heavy at heart. And then he sees his um, subordinate, his chief of staff, taking some letters out of his tunic pocket and tearing them up. And he understands that his chief of staff doesn't want the Germans to be like looking through his personal letters when they search his dead body, which takes everything home even more than it already has. What follows is a series of, of similar vignettes to what we had before as we jump from battalion uh, or from, from company to company in that battalion and learn more about the individual stories. Konanikin's company fights alongside penal battalion soldiers, um, which previously um, Konanikin had considered them irritating at best. But now, in, in the face of the war to come, he considers them almost, um, well, pitiable. But we'll get there in a second. So the, the attack from the Germans begins with a, a barrage of artillery and mortars. And so three soldiers who are just sitting there eating uh, are almost hit by a direct missile. As the smoke clears, one man sitting there looks down at his mess tin and he says, The bastards won't even let us have a bite to eat, said one man, looking at the earth in his mess tin, as if the Geneva Conventions forbade mortar and artillery fire during mealtimes. One of the other soldiers there says, like, kind of shakily, oh, he thought that was it. He can't believe they're alive. And then the third among them falls over, now headless and quite bloody and dead, which is in an introduction to the rapidity and the senselessness of death to come. For the next two hours, they are under constant artillery and mortar fire, and it is something that is singularly destructive to morale. Hundreds of men, it's written, lay there in the smoke and the fire, 
each entirely alone, each conscious as never before of his body's fragility, of how at any moment his body might be lost irrevocably. And this was indeed the aim of the barrage, to plunge each individual into his own solitude. Relentless thunder would prevent a soldier from hearing the words of his commissar. Smoke would make him unable to see his commander. The soldier would feel isolated from his comrades, and in this awful isolation he would be conscious of only his own weakness. And this barrage lasted not for seconds, not for minutes, but for two whole hours, mangling men's thoughts and destroying their memories. After two hours of this, suddenly the barrage lets up. Only long enough for them to have a sense of coherence before the sound of tank treads begin to approach. But unlike what the Wehrmacht expect for this morale to be entirely destroyed, the Red Army began to shoot back relatively quickly and, and engage in a defense of the station. And Kolonikin, who usually feels negatively, like we said, towards the men during the barrage, almost pities them. And formerly, he had divided all population of the, all, the entire male population of the Soviet Union into those who had been professional soldiers before the war and those who had not. And now he no longer made that distinction. However, as it's noted by the narrator, his new feelings toward the people around him were never put to the test because he was killed a few minutes before the end of the artillery barrage. It's just such good narration in this part, especially. Mm -hmm. The way that uh, Grossman plays with time and the way that he kind of extends you thinking into the future like, oh, good. Oh, great. He's changed his attitude. This is great. Uh, people are good. Well, it doesn't really matter because he's dead, but it, he would have changed <laughs> his mind or, you know, he, he was did before he died. He was dead before even the last chapter chapter began, actually. Right, yeah, no, it was really... He does a couple things that are, like, similar to that that I thought were really interesting. Right, yeah. Well, kind of similar to not, not playing with time, but playing with, I think, like, the, the presence of death is an interesting one in these following vignettes. For example, mm -hmm. we follow one anonymous soldier who is part of the penal battalion and has um, his, was a former prisoner and was able to enlist and has worked his way up. And actually, he is an anti-tank rifle operator and manages to kill a tank after a actually surprisingly tense firefight where like they're both like you both keep missing each other. But he manages to kill a tank. But it's it's he's completely alone. As it's mentioned, even as he has just managed to kill this tank, death was nearby. He was confronting death in single combat. Jora, his number two, had died already. Konikin, his battalion, command, battalion commander, had been killed by shrapnel a few minutes before the tanks attacked. His section leader was almost dead too, crushed beneath a huge heap of brick, unable to give orders or even let out a groan. He was alone, with only his gun. And after destroying the tank, he's on top of the world. He's certain that he's going to be pardoned for his former crimes. In this case, he's not a political prisoner, but just someone who was arrested for too-inch drunkenness. Um, he was arrested for what, unfortunately, could perhaps become a new Tipsy Tolstoy shirt. <laughs> the written report that says this soldier's conduct in matters pertaining to vodka is most excessive. <laughs> yeah. We should turn that into a shirt. I like that, actually. Yeah, in um, my margin notes, I wrote a shirt idea, which <laughs> not great, admittedly, but... I'll keep it in mind. Keep it in mind. So he's on top of this world, and he's so certain when another tank comes into view, he doesn't even feel fear. He feels just joy because he's just killed a tank. But before he can even pull the trigger, he's ripped apart by machine gun fire. Unfortunately for him, he's still alive, and two orderlies, after finding him much later with a fractured spine and a stomach gashed open, drag him away in a great coat. The deaths here aren't clean and heroic. They're rough. In fact, some deaths are quick and some deaths are rough, and the, those who die quickly are almost admired by the others. 
So as you might imagine, this is rough fighting. By that evening, 65% of the battalion are dead. Uh, Filyashkin and his only surviving officer left, Shvedkov, go over what men, supplies, and weapons they have left. Um, Shvedkov is taking notes in a school notebook of who are who of the dead. He's taking account of the dead and how they died because he wants to give it to command later to commend those who died heroically. And Filyashkin discourages him from doing this, saying, none of us are going to make it back. Why are you doing this? And Shvedkov acknowledges that maybe it's a little stupid, but he keeps on going. There are a lot of moments of levity and, and sadness exist in such close proximity, which makes sense. But And not that this is a particularly, I guess, funny scene, but at one point, Shvedkov says to Filyashkin, as he's taking account, Igumnov's death was particularly stupid. He half got to his feet to call a messenger, and that was the end of him. All deaths are stupid, said Filyashkin. There's no clever way to get killed. And we learn more about the emotional toil of combat. And they talk more in death. Filyashkin being unusually candidate with subordinate, which his subordinate notes down, you know, unbecoming conduct, but they still have a kind of a heart to heart. They note, hey, we still have a gift that an American's woman group sent to us and was given to us to distribute to someone, to a woman being acting heroically. So they decided to give it to Lena Gnatyuk, who is the one of their medics, in fact, one of their senior sergeants, uh, as well as someone you may remind, uh, remember, had a liaison, so to speak, with Filyashkin. They call her up and she comes and they give her the, the gift. They ask her, hey, open it up. We're kind of curious what, what these American women have given us. And they open it up and find lots of nice things, a blouse, a bathrobe, silk stockings, perfume, makeup, all this stuff. And it's noted, Lena looked at the two commanders. There was a moan of silence around the station, as if to prevent anything from disturbing the grace and delicacy of her expression. Her look said a great deal. Not only that she knew she would never be a mother, but she also took a certain pride in her harsh fate. Before going on to her saying... I don't need any of these things. I have my uniform and that's enough. And she refuses the gift. And after some arguing, she says, I'm not going to take it. Shvedkov goes off to do some other duties. And Lyashin stops Lena before she can go. And he says, look, I want to apologize for how I acted. Look, we, we may not live another day. And I want to say goodbye, like properly. And uh, Lena says back to him, look, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to apologize for. I know what I did. I'm not a child. I'm responsible for myself. And I knew what I was doing. So... Don't apologize to me. Secondarily, I'm not staying here. I've got a duty at the aid post. And third, I've got my own uniform, so I won't be taking these gifts. And he kind of understands that there's something different about her now when he says, look, okay, well, just remember, don't be taken, don't be taken prisoner. That pistol I gave you, keep it at hand just in case. And then she kind of like interrupts him and says, look, I can shoot myself just as well with my own revolver. And then she left, not looking back at the senior lieutenant, none of the fine, useless rags now lying on the ground. Grossman really takes, I think, great care in this part to remind you how young everybody is. Yes. Uh, yes. Age comes up a lot and also parenthood. Mm hmm. Yes. And yeah, I mean, pretty striking passages. The one that you just read, I really liked a lot. It's a very difficult mindset, I think, to uh, comprehend. I think, well, I'm going to expand on that into a second because I think. Uh, in... There's another scene that goes well with it later. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Lena Gnatyuk returns to her own command post and a guard welcomes, as, as he sees her, welcomes her. So like, oh, welcome in, Senior Sergeant. And upon hearing that, she felt momentarily disoriented. Was Senior Sergeant Gnatyuk really the same being as the young girl who, two years earlier in Podvotia, in the province of Sumi, had worked as a brigade leader during the beet harvest? Was she really the girl who had come back home in the evening and called out merrily to her mother, Come on, Mama, give me some food. I'm starving. After thinking about that, she finds Kovalyov and tries to apologize to him, but he, he brushes her off and pushes her away. At, at, at some point, I don't think this is made clear, they had some sort of relationship which kind of got broken when she, so to speak, liaised with um, Filyashkin, and that's where their interaction ends. 
From this point, we go to a soldier who is only semi-conscious, really not sure what's going on. And it's not clear to the reader what's going on until you pull back and see that he's being tended to by Gnatyuk. And in fact, both of his legs are broken. And he's lying on the greatcoats of many wounded or dead soldiers. So after tending to him, she leaves and sending a few things to him to, to the point of what Matt said just a moment ago. She went over to another of the wounded. The soldier with the broken legs called out, Mother, come back. I need to ask you something. In a minute, my son, she replied. To her and to everyone there, it seemed entirely natural for a man with grace double to be calling her mother, and for her, age 24, to be calling him my son. We'll come back to that. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. That's why I recommended Colin Ty's work earlier. But at, at, at the end of that night, she works all through the night to help the wounded. And in the morning, Astuka drops a bomb into the pit where she, Senior Sergeant Knatyuk, and two orderlies are helping the wounded. And not a single death is drawn from that med bay after that. A full day into this, the situation is hellish. People are wounded everywhere. A lot of the medical staff are dead. Uh, people are, are going out of their minds in pain. And Filiashkin is, is, is going, he was the senior commander here. He was now operating a machine gun with Shvedkov helping him. Uh, Filiashkin was formerly trained or was initially trained as a machine gunner in the infantry and now operates both as a machine gunner, yelling at Shvedkov to give him, uh, you know, cooling or another belt of ammo. But he's also acting as a commander, calling out where the enemy are and how to respond to that. Yeah, this guy's insane. Yeah, <laughs> this guy's like actually insane yeah and he keeps on fighting after being wounded but unfortunately for him he eventually falls unconscious and Shvedkov doesn't even have a moment to move him or wound him because as soon as he stops shooting an artillery the artillery assumes something is happening there and they're finally able to zero in and uh, Shvedkov is killed and if Filiashkin wasn't already dead he's killed after a shell lands right in their position but okay before they die can we talk about the fact that the line that Rather than thinking that he had to defend himself against a sly, crafty, advancing enemy, he saw himself as the attacker. Oh my god. Yeah. The way heroism is portrayed in this scene is very interesting, because it's both simultaneously undercut by Grossman talking about some realities of war, but it's also reinforced, at least in one's mind, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Kovalyov is now, at this point, the battalion's senior commander, but he did not know this. He had lost contact with Filyashkin at the beginning of the German attack. And at this See, point, this is what I'm talking about. This is a great segue. Yes. Yeah. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know he's the senior commander. In fact, he's barely alive. He's severely concussed. His ears are ringing. He can barely stand up. He's got blood pouring out from his nose. And like he's just soaked in his own blood. He can't even... He's like falling down every time he tries to stand up. So he just has to like sit there with the machine gun in hand, shooting at anyone as they come by. And as he's sitting there, you know, in, in an air you know, found surrounded by gunfire, rubble, uh, soldiers approaching on him. And he has, he thinks back on his past, uh, you know, in girls he's known, on Tolia, being reviewed by military doctors. Uh, and it's written, his heart and soul really were those of a child. His experience of life, his dreams and anxieties, his moments of rudeness, his clear faith in his doubts, everything about him was still adolescent. And he was not living through a bitter, merciless fulfillment of his adolescent dreams. In the last hours of his life, he had grown up. He had become the stern, unshakable figure he had so longed to see when, long ago, before going to bed, he had frowned enigmatically into a little pocket mirror backed with crinkly red paper. And his new strength and manliness would have been evident to anyone who could see him, not only to his friends and fellow villagers, not only to his mother and the girl who had once given him a photograph stamped with a passionate kiss, but even to his fiercest enemies. And he is so wrapped up in these, this feeling of, I am finally who I want to be, even though it, it, simultaneously he's, at least he's childlike, he uses that energy to write a report to Filyashkin, tell them exactly what's going on and that we're going to stay here until we're dead. 
He sends a soldier off to take it to company command, and he, he grabs a locket, which is addressed to his sons, tells him to fight on and to remember him well. And Kovalyov was not even married, it's read. And he has no idea. He had no idea why he wrote to sons who did not exist, but he needed to. He wanted a somber, honorable memory of him to endure in the world. He was a husband of the war. He did not want to accept that the war was cutting his life short, that he would never know fatherhood or be a husband to a woman of his own. He was writing these words a few minutes before his death. He was struggling for his own future time. Aged only 20, he did not want to yield to death. Here too, he remained stubborn, determined to conquer. And by the time the soldier returns to Kovalyov to tell him that senior command is dead and that he is now in command, he finds Kovalyov dead, shot through the head, and says to himself, instantaneous on the bridge of a nose after seeing the bullet wound, both appalled by the death swiftness, yet also envious of it. This was the scene I was talking about, for yeah. reference. Um, yeah. Parenthood. Very, yeah. Everyone here, it, as it's not just extremely young, they are, I mean, at the oldest in their 30s, most of them in their early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, all the commanders of this battalion are dead. Uh, and Vavilov takes command. And no one appoints him or elects him, but no one is surprised because a lot of this chapter 46 is covering the character of people. He notes that there are people who change depending on the situation. There are people uh, for the better or for the worse. And there are certain people who stay exactly who they are. And those people like Vavilov are the most, you know, worthy or notable or important in some ways. Uh, so he quickly reorganizes the survivors, knowing everyone's character because he works with them. He moves who to put in command. He changes how defense is happening. I mean, it's something that they all understand together. Um, it's noted in only a few days they had learned the grim art of urban warfare, uh, which has come at the cost of hundreds of or dozens uh, to hundreds of lives at this point. Just as they understood the functioning of a storm group, they had worked out its ideal size and laws that determines its success. Each man was important, but his importance could only be realized if the group worked together. So, you know, typically this is a, a theme that's been hit, hit upon a lot in this and continues to be hit on. Unlike those who change, some of them, some of the, the most reserved are now big-hearted and emotionally generous. Some of those who have mo been most cheerful and careful were now grim and taciturn, which is also another thing that's hit upon the way characters change or evolve in different situations, except for Vavilov, who is exactly the same man that his wife knew, that his kids knew, that his family and neighbors knew, the exact same man who sat in his hut in the evenings dipping his bread in a mug of milk, and the same man who worked in a field, in a forest, or out on a road. In the following night, the Germans attacked by surprise, knowing that any sound can garner gunfire. In the attention of the Soviets, they attack in silence, using only flashlight bursts to acknowledge that they have taken an area. And this fighting is brutal. It's happening with knives, spades, bricks, the steel heels of boots. It is bloody and it is rough. And in the morning, very few positions are still left by the Red Army. In one of the last hold holdouts, you find Vavilov, Usarov, Resev, Reshchikov, as well as Mulyarshuk. Uh, you, some of them we mentioned before, especially Vavilov and Usurov. The other three, I don't think we've mentioned them, but they've been kind of around on the periphery. Yeah, they're mostly just like the rank and file soldiers at this yes, point. Yes, exactly. So, um, and one thing I want to highlight here is as they're sitting there, they don't continue to fight because there's really not much. To, they're surrounded on all sides, so they're just waiting out the night. And one of the one of them, Mulyarchuk, uh, in a mixture of Russian and Ukrainian, it's noted, he begins to tell everyone about his mother's life and his stove making and, and what he, uh, in his own you know life in the village and in and, and his work, which was like mentioned stove ma stove making. As he's telling the story calmly, without fear of the Germans, Vavilov struck a match and lit a cigarette. Everyone saw two black tears flow down his grimy cheeks. Go on, Mulyarchik, who said, say more. I was going to rebuild our own stove during the summer. And so they are, 
the scene of of intense sadness is reinforced by them just talking about their lives. Oh, now it's noted all of them talking about their lives and what they were before in past tense um, and wanting to hear only about what life was like in the village and just building building stoves and what they were going to do with their families. As they're talking, they realize that one of them, their number, Resef, has died from his wounds. And Vavilov tries to comfort the others, knowing that their death is approaching, um, and says he allows that he wished he could see his home just one more time, which allows a kind of quiet moment of levity, or not levity, of, of lightness, as Ristrakov notes that Vavilov still has a bar of chocolate, which he was going to give to his daughter. In the morning, soldiers down by the Volga hear the commotion from the railway station. The biting is still going on, and as the lights raise, the... Um, the sneak attack of the Wehrmacht is, has turned to regular combat, although they've gained much ground. And they note that it's surprising that this tough lot are still fighting. But it's written, Not one of these Soviet soldiers saw the sun's slant rays fall for a moment on a middle-aged man as he climbed out of a black pit, threw a grenade, and looked all around him, his right alert gaze out of keeping with his torn clothes in the black, bristly stubble on his sunken cheeks. Vying with one another, German machine guns greedily opened fire on this man. He stood there in a cloud of bright yellow dust. When he was no longer to be seen, he was as if, rather than collapsing in a dead bloody lump, he had dissolved in the dusty, milky, yellowish mist swirling in the morning sun. Good death. Good death. Easily the most poetic one. And the one that is given a sense of heroism, which I want to talk more about later, whereas a lot of the other ones are just cut short by circumstance. So the following day, the Wehrmacht, having now finally taken the train station, their burial teams are going around collecting all their own dead. They're burying them, marking each grave with a cross, the name of the soldier, birth date, and the site of their death, all the train station. And Leonard and Bach wander around. As a reminder, Leonard is the former SS propagandist, and Bach is the, I want to say he's a lieutenant or a captain. But they're wandering around looking at the Soviet soldiers, feeling disgusted by the smells of it. Uh, Leonard actually notes that he's interested that the officers look more swelled than the rank and file, meaning that they probably died first, saying it challenges one of their core assumptions that Russian soldiers, and we should be saying Soviet soldiers here, but as Matt has pointed out previously, oftentimes of Grossman says Russian specifically, which I'm going to try not to alter in my mind to, even though it should be, you know, Russian soldiers, as we noted, it's, it's a variety of ethnicities fighting here. That, that's the language being used. But he says that Russian soldiers only fight in the behest of the superiors, at least that's their understanding, but that doesn't appear to be borne out here. And they see Stumpfa, who's the SS man, to be reminded you, playing around Athletica, one of their other officers, and Bach comments approvingly on this. And to his bafflement, he's reproached by Leonard by this, and he's surprised and asks him why he, he's why he's being attacked for that, and wondering if it's something to do with their conversation the other night where he thinks he said too much to Leonard. Uh, and Leonard did not reply, it's written. He was unable to say that the same Stumpfa, whom everyone so loved, had recently handed him a written denunciation of Letica and Vogel, accusing them of voicing subversive opinions. And keep in mind, in the last part, Stumpfa has like a sort of proletarian rage against Letica and Vogel, and he sees them as enemies of the good Germans, like the parasite class who don't deserve to have anything and should be more persecuted by the government. Unknowing of that, Letica and Vogel are wandering around with Stumpfa, and they look around and say, I don't think we're going to find anything of value in here. There's no purpose in looting. But Stumpfa, on the other hand, is thoroughly checking everybody. On one, he finds in a bag a chocolate bar, and he eventually finds the bag for intended for, or the package intended for Gnatyuk, and is over find, overjoyed at finding such high-quality loot there. In the wake of this, we join, far, far away, Maria Nikolaevna Vavilovna, as she wakes up her children, Nastya and Vanya, and goes about their day. Uh, Nastya and Maria argue in a very familial way, and they go out to the fields, and they, they, we see people working, and Maria, watching the field, notes the effects of the war. 
army clothing and men's boots, which are now on the frames of women and children because the men are all fighting and they're no longer there to wear them. And old men and women who should have retired and girls and boys who should have been in classrooms are working the fields. The mechanic is gone, replaced by his teenage sister, who is now repairing tractors. And she marvels that only four months ago, when Pyotr Vavilov left, she wondered how she could possibly carry on. But now, in fact, she herself as a leader, she's the brigade leader. She goes to Kokhol's meetings where everyone listens to her. And she even, when accused of, of or when her Kokhol is accused of not producing enough, sets the chairman right and says, here's exactly why we're producing what we are and is able to defend their work. Uh, as she works herself, she's overcome with sadness and she works uh, much longer than others because she's thinking that, where, where I, why haven't I heard from Pyotr? And then reassures herself, well, Elyosha, her son who went out to fight, took many months to write me a letter finally. And he's alive and well, so... Not hearing from Pyotr, many reasons for that. He's probably fine. And as she keeps working, she noticed another woman, Degyatorova, who lost both, for, both her husband and her sons to the war and is mostly kind of crying and watching. Finally, it's just them. And Maria asks her, why do you keep crying? And Degyatorova looks around, said nothing for a moment, as if she hadn't heard or understood, then said quietly, I think you're crying too. So although Filiashkin's battalion was killed to a person, the tradition of their struggle lives on in the minds of everyone who is fighting there, and the reinforcements they have been waiting on arrive and begin selling their lives just as dearly. And although they are also losing greatly uh, every moment that someone keeps fighting in the war, that is time for more reinforcements to arrive. And as the war continues, uh, more reinforcements arrive and they, their position becomes stronger and stronger. And there's a brief uh, point here where we learn about in the months after this siege, there were many arguments over who had really done what and who was really responsible for the victory. But the narrator assures us that really, it could only be the combined effort of the troops, the artillery, everyone who was in the city, everyone who's outside of the artillery, all the uh, people bringing supplies up to the front line, only the collective action of all of them could lead to the Soviet victory in, you know, classic Soviet form. From here, we follow on to uh, away from the combat into the stories of families, and we rejoin uh, Spiridonov. And his daughter Vera, as Spiridonov works at the Salgris power station. Vera, as a reminder, last time we were with her, she was uh, working at the hospital and was wounded by a bomb. Thankfully for her, uh, after some operations, she's regained use of her sight and is more or less fine, minus some scars on her face. Um, and she no longer works at the hospital, and she's trying to get her father to find her something to do. As the workers in the factory are continuing to work under shelling, under attack by the Wehrmacht soldiers, the fragility of their life is now more apparent, it's noted, but also the value of every individual emerged more clearly than ever. Spiridonov mourns his wife in this time. It's hard for him to imagine that she's never, he's never going to talk to her again. And it, it feels to him that whole years have passed since his wife's death, not only because uh, every day brings more deaths, every hour brings more crises, he cannot imagine that he's never going to talk to her again. And, and for him and his daughter, this has changed their relationship. Previously, they were somewhat combative and didn't understand each other. But now, uh, in the death of after the death of Marussia, they seem to have their relationship changes. They understand each other better. Vera is proud of his work and sees him as someone who's like not a distant, weird figure, but as someone who is a person and needs a lot of help, especially at home. I think a, a consistent characteristic of a lot of men in this book is that they're very good at work, but they're also really helpless at home. Some people, like Pyotr Vavilov or Krimov, not true, but Spiridonov, Victor, definitely true. Uh, and Spiridonov, for his part, sees his daughter as a responsible adult. Uh, she's, I think, probably at this point, 17 or 18, uh, and he even goes to her for advice quite often. Uh, he's even trying to trying to get her to move away from the power station where they now live after moving out of the apartment where they used to live after Marussia's death, which Vera refuses, although she does enjoy the feeling of being like a child again. You know, keep in mind, she's really only 17 or 18, so feeling like... 
you you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders that someone can make those decisions for you to send you somewhere safe. You, you might imagine why that might feel nice. Can we go on through their life? Spiridonov at some point brings back Pavel Andreevich. Uh, after not seeing him for a great deal of time, they have dinner with him. Andreevich tells them about Seryozha, uh, Stepan's son, Vera's sister, who is wounded but alive and working with our mortar battery. Um, as he, he leaves, uh, both Spiridonov senses that there's something off with, with Vera, and they lay down to sleep and they're kind of talking until suddenly she tells him that she's pregnant and she's due in the winter. Uh, and Spiridonov goes out into the yard for some air. And it's written at this point, Spiridonov heard his daughter's light steps behind him. Then she was standing beside him. He could sense her alert gaze. Turning towards her, he looked at her, intently, shocked by the sudden force of his feelings. In her sad, thin face, in her dark, staring eyes, he saw not only the weakness of a small, helpless being, a child anxiously waiting for her father to speak, he could also see the remarkable and beautiful power, a power with the strength to triumph over the death now storming across the earth and through the sky. He put his arms around Vera's thin shoulders and said, Don't be afraid, my daughter. We'll manage. We won't let your little one come to harm. Something we said about the place of motherhood in this book, we'll come back to it in a second. A lot to be said on it, really. A lot, lot to be said on it, actually. That's something that's a big feature of Grossman and his conception of art, and something that we'll expand on in actually a future reading about Grossman and his idea of beauty and the place of motherhood in that. We'll talk about that in a sec. Well, later, multiple talk. We'll be talking about it a lot. We'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. So the fighting in the center of the city, this intense phase lasts for about two weeks. And at this point, the city is a city of war. Its buildings and cellars are no longer places of life, but merely features of trenches and laid with telephone wire and dozens of infantry regiments. The scale of the battle is clear to people, even people 30 or 40 kilometers away, you can see the constant glow in the sky. But the imagination the narrator writes doesn't end there. The imagination of the battle was felt by millions of people in Europe, China, and America. It determined the thoughts of diplomats and politicians in Tokyo and Ankara. It did influence the tone of Churchill's secret conversations and the spirit of appeals and decrees signed by President Roosevelt. Soviet, Polish, and Yugoslav partisans lived and breathed this battle, as did members of the French resistance, prisoners of war in the German camps, and Jews in the Warsaw and Bialystok ghettos. For tens of millions of people, the fire in Stalingrad was the fire of Prometheus. An awesome and joyful hour for mankind was approaching. Uh, which is something I want to bring up just because of the uh, international lens, that, which Grossman does bring up from time to time, but is on full force here. Now we come to the wind down where Krimov, we finally return to Nikolai Krimov, whose anti-tank battalion has now been dissolved and he's now given a new position of Lexer soldiers in the 62nd Army and is summoned to Stalingrad to do so. On his way there, he sees some teenagers dancing to an accordion and is struck by their reserved merriment, also both happy but also always looking towards Stalingrad. And he's certain about how he's going to lecture Stalingrad to his troops and he's certain how he's going to talk about the international uh, viewpoint of Stalingrad and the importance of it, but... It's written, now listening to the accordion, watching the girls who had gathered like a little flock of birds by the board wall of a small Akhtuba home, he felt emotions for which there are no words. And he goes towards Stalingrad, thinking of Mostovsky and Semyonov, Semyonov being his driver, Mostovsky being his friend and the old Bolshevik, both of whom were captured earlier in the book. Uh, he's not uncertain what happened to them. As he sees Stalingrad, he feels, as he approaches, he feels that this place must always be one of importance that even a thousand years from now, even people do not remember what happened here, they will still hear the distant boot marches of, of troops approaching the city of some ethereal force telling them that this is a place of importance and solemnity. And he arrives at the crossing and after seeing life go on as normal despite shelling goes on across the river 
feeling afraid at first that they're going to be bombed. But as they approach the city, feeling that fear release as he sees the city that it has become and feeling that it has become one with the war and not even noticing when the, the motorboat takes off. And for a moment, he thinks that this is an interesting change. But as it's written in the final sentence of the book, Krimov was now in the grip of new impressions. He was walking on the earth of Stalingrad. And that is where we end on page 967, I want to say. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. The most frustrating ending. <laughs> I love to have a book about the Battle of Stalingrad and have like 10 chapters be about the Battle of Stalingrad. And then it ends on one of the main characters just entering the city. Um, I see why it's done, but still incredibly funny. <laughs> it is. Uh, I laughed. I cried. I screamed. Mm-hmm. I cried again. Right. Yeah. This was an interesting... This was... It kind of like... it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I, I really... We need to get into life and fate soon. But I just like... Like, it's fine. You you know how it ends, historically. You, right. You can deduce <laughs> how they win. Teamwork yeah. makes the dream work, more or less. And it's clear. However... I cared about so many people of this book for Grossman <laughs> to just leave it on somebody walking into a city. Yeah. I'm angry. Well, as so briefly, if you read the epilogue in, I, would, I was going to say our edition, but only one edition of this book exists in English. The epilogue, Chandler, I believe it's Chandler. Uh, it's translated both, both Robert Chandler and Elizabeth Chandler. I don't, I didn't see an author attribution for the effort, but I'm going to assume it's Robert Chandler talks about the process of translating uh, what he and his wife did to translate the novel and notes that Primarily, so there are three official publications in the Soviet Union, each slightly different, uh, two before Stalin's death, one after, as well as like 10 different versions of the novel that Grossman wrote. And these differ a, a lot. Uh, Chandler considers the third one to be kind of one that's worthy of publishing in its own right, uh, because it's so it's such an interesting piece. But also, it's not the one that he went with finally, because it doesn't have things like at the end of the third edition, Vera is not pregnant, although she has given, although she is pregnant in Life and Fate. Other characters, Ivonikov, who becomes Ikonikov in Life and Fate, does things at a different time. And so he, he took the third edition, which was pretty complete, and then combined it with the 1956 publication, and then also added some other stuff. And it's really interesting. You should definitely read it if you have the book. I also want to point out that it's interesting how much the book changed over its of its course. And early editions, early versions of it, certain characters are different altogether. There are certain edition versions where it's written where like Victor Shroom and the Shaposhnikovs are changed wildly, or some of them don't even exist. Dorensky and Novikov in early drafts are the same character, and it's only in later character chapters versions where they become differentiated and become completely different characters. It's interesting, and the reason why I bring that up is because if you're reading this, you're reading a version of the book which doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anywhere but in the version that's written now. It's the creation of of Chandler and of the Chandlers and their attempt to bring what they believe was all the things Gross merely intended. And uh, Chandler also suggests that Life and Fate and Stalingrad were maybe meant to be the same book, like we kind of talked about at the top of this episode. It's just a book that you read because you like reading and not because you ever expect to reach the end of it. Right, yeah. It, you know, if they were combined, like, uh, yeah. It would have been fine. I'm still interested. Like, I still want to read more. Right, and there is a lot more, thankfully. Which we'll get to. Which we'll get to. I, I enjoy reading this. There was, I, I've only read part of Life and Fate, but now, having read this, so much of Life and Fate makes so much more sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I think we were talking about this earlier, and maybe we should have this conversation. Maybe we should have recorded that conversation. But it's so interesting that more normally you see this recommended. Just you see, well, you don't. You actually never see Stalingrad recommended almost ever. You see Life and Fate recommended to a, a kind of a lay audience. Yeah, to some degree, Life and Fate is different philosophically enough from Stalingrad that, yeah, you could read them separately or just read one and not the other because they are written in different eras of Grisman's life and in completely different belief points. I mean, Stalingrad's written at the high of the elation of like the Red Army fighting off the Wehrmacht, the Wehrmacht which had implemented the Final Solution, which killed members of Grossman's own family for merely being Jewish. And so the Red Army and Stalingrad are liberators. By the time you get to Life and Fate, obviously, now these same liberators are being subjected to the horrors of the gulags. So I think it's, I actually think it, it's yeah. good. Like, I think it's, that. No, I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. But no, yeah. I think that you can't really have one without the other, which is why I think that it's really quite necessary for people to read both. And I, I wonder if Life and Fate being suggested, I mean, yeah, it, it is definitely possible that it just is the better piece of literature in general. Though the reason that it's suggested to the lay audience, I don't know necessarily. Maybe it's just because there was maybe a translation available earlier than Stalingrad. Maybe there was a, a more clearer one to translate, and maybe that had something to do with it. Or maybe people just prefer anti-Soviet sentiment in their writing. I don't know. I think it's like, some combination of the three. You know, I think, right, like it's, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that it could be. But I think the reason that I like having both is because it really forces you to reconcile with how difficult the Soviet Union was to kind of understand, I think. Right. It does make me, it is a lot, it's very thoughtful. I think that's the thing is normally when you hear like, wow, isn't mm -hmm. Hitler just like Stalin? It's usually uh, an argument made in bad faith. So right. it's made, that's like when you listen to it, I'm like, I, like, okay, I, I don't, I'm not going to disagree with you. That's that the horrors of Stalinism are immense. However, I, I think that the, you're, this is a broader, you're, you're not trying to specifically talk about these systems. There's a broader thing you're trying to underline here. Uh, when, when Grossman is approaching this and when, other, when you can definitely make this approach, Grossman, I think is just the first person to write a thousand pages about it and be, me be like, yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Grossman, when Grossman's approaching it, you see it's something that's deeply personal and it's something that is well thought out and something that's clearly gone through a lot of thought. And so the, those comparisons in the second book, which are up more of the comparisons between Stalinism and Hitlerism make a lot more sense and are a lot more are done in good faith mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think that, um, that even in this book, I don't think that he closes the door to any sort of critique of the Soviet system. I mean, there really isn't a lot of discussion of the Soviet system broadly. There's some, but it's mostly focused on the military, which is generally an authoritarian, like a, a authoritarian structure worldwide from what i understand about the, you know you the don't military. generally see a lot of democratically organized no, you, militaries <laughs> no you don't see a lot of anarchist military groups well you, uh, got, well, you, know, you do working have for countries for, well, well yeah well the definition of anarchist is going to be anti-country but yeah got, i mean you got um what's his you name you know what i mean that one ukrainian his name is like nikim Batka, father um in the civil war and in the Russian Civil War, in this case, the Ukrainian Civil War, there was a large, the so-called Black Army, which was led by um, an anarchist leader, Nestor Makhno. Anyway, sorry, side point. Go on. <laughs> you've, you've gone far too deep. <laughs> <laughs> no, my point is just that a lot of the, the defects of the Soviet military are not necessarily Soviet defects. Right. Right. I mean, it's something you could... Oh, the military has bureaucracy. Okay. Yeah, the Soviet system is famous for its bureaucracy, but I think you could probably find kind of 
other instances of that elsewhere. Yeah. And so I think that, like, I don't read this and just think, ah, what, just a, a blind fool for believing in the Soviet system. It's something, He's not believing in the Soviet system. He's believing in the people of the Soviet Union, which is different. Right. And you can't fault someone for wanting to believe in, you know, their community, basically. Yeah. It's something that, what has always struck me, I, I think I brought this up before, but in his piece, Ukraine Without Jews, um, he talks about the, the, the Jewish population of Ukraine, and he talks about them living alongside Ukrainians. And when he describes the people that are no longer there, he says, like, they lived and died, and they sinned and did good deeds too, as if doing good deeds too is like a secondary thing. And I think for so many people, like, a population is either good or... It's easy to talk about things as good or bad, but he was like, you don't need to be good or bad to need to exist. I mean, a lot of people did bad things. Yeah, sure, they committed sins, but that's part of life. We aren't all great. We aren't all perfect people. We all we all have our ups and downs. And so when he's portraying, so when he, like that's that's his article talking about a population who is murdered in mass by the Wehrmacht and says that they you know they that they were they were sinners in a sense that before Huberman brings up their good deeds that being a sinner does not mean that you don't have a, a right to live to exist. The Soviet soldiers too, uh, they are not. I mean, they they have moments of goodness, they have moments of badness. The same, those whom seem best among them in moments of crisis suddenly become useless or grim or taciturn. But that's not an indictment of any system as a whole. It's just people in different situations act differently, and some are good, and some do some do good things, and some do bad things. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're a good or bad person. It's a, it's an interesting view of humanity, which I am quite attracted to. So we got to talk about the ending a little bit more. Let's do that. Yes. Back to our conversation. Yes. But I don't remember what we were talking about. So speaking about the end of Stalingrad. Great, Leiden. <laughs> there definitely wasn't a drink break in between there. <laughs> speaking of the ending of Stalingrad. Yes. We understand that. <laughs> yes. Primov is right leading this force that's going to win the war, more or less. However, I thought it was interesting, the line before that, where they're talking about how... Hmm. Things that they once noticed very much, they no longer notice, the way they kind of fade into the background. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about the uh, boat that they took to get over to Stalingrad. And they say that at first they had all listened intently, noticing every slightest misfire. But as they approached the shore, they were no longer even aware whether or not the engine was still running. I thought it was a good kind of summation of the book, actually. Which is to say, right, as we're talking about heroic deeds and all of this stuff, the hardest part is really the first part. Because once you're in it, you kind of don't really have, first of all, another choice. And it's just also, I feel like, human nature that, you know, kind of once you're going and doing something, you can keep doing that. Right. It's much harder to start doing something. The hardest part is to step into Stalingrad than to continue fighting once you're already in it. And part of that is inertia, and part of it is there's literally no way out once you're in it. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that it was easy to be barricaded in fighting like this at all. But I feel like that's kind of the mentality of the book towards war. Right. I think it, I think it's well established at the beginning of the defense of the mm -hmm. train station when Filiashkin and every one of the soldiers there is dreaming of a, of a different life, a better life, one where they survive and they have exactly the life they want. And they have everything they, that will finally make them happy. But only some of them understand that these are just the fantasies of dying men. And none of them want to die, as I think, I want to say it's Yermenko earlier in the book, chastises 
a, a journalist for saying that they, 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 the soldiers go willingly, willingly and ready to die. And he says to him, yeah, no, it's not, a, about that's that a, not a holiday. Yeah. yeah. He's like, it's not a holiday. Look, no one wants to die. If they, if they have to, yes, in the defense of the city, yes, but no one wants to. In this scene, it, it's hammered home that these, even though this is a heroic stand, it's made clear none of them want to die in this heroic stand. They want to go and have good, happy lives, but it's just circumstance. It's inertia. It's no other choice that keeps them here fighting. There's a line, I can't remember where it was, where it's sort of towards the beginning of this, where the effect of it is Grossman's describing somebody, right, doing this, thinking about uh, staying alive. And he says this character, uh, you know, wanted to stay alive, as people tend to do. Um, and it was just kind of this sarcastic quip in the description, I think, at people that think, oh, well, everyone in the Soviet Union was just either willing to die for the country because they were so brainwashed or... You know, they had a gun to their back, and so they were going in and just, you know, fighting until their deaths. But that was not necessarily the point. People weren't exactly lining up to be shot. Mm -hmm. If they had just, I think, accepted their fate and were going to die, not for anything, but just for the sake of dying, right? There's a discussion on, and one part of this, and the soldiers are discussing, well, why not just shoot ourselves? Right. But that's not what they're there to do. No. Anyways, yeah. that's my that's my consensus. That's my understanding of the ending because I thought, why would you end the book talking about a boat engine? It has like to that. be more significant. I think that's interesting. I like that. I hadn't thought about it that way. Thank you. It's yours now. <laughs> it's I'm, all of yours I, now. I, I, I will take it and guard it as should all of you, that knowledge. I just, it just, like, you can't write a thousand page book and end it on a boat engine without it being significant that's all i'm saying <laughs> that's like literature 101 i have to so I, ha it, I had to discuss it it can't be about a boat herman melville is shaking <laughs> tell me it's not all about a boat <laughs> yeah ending uh, what, what other things did you want to address about it because I, I got a lot of oh things my. i want to talk about there's i mean there are a lot Goodness. of things to talk about sound we've talked about sound yes grossman's ability to just describe first of all anything that's phenomenal. But especially in wartime, the way that he describes sound is great. He distinguishes between multiple types of silence. There's right this regenerative silence that happens when the Germans are actually not going to be firing. And there's this sort of pit in your stomach sort of silence where you know they're gearing up for an attack. Uh, the tension that builds and that kind of silence. And that's, I think, probably true and a really phenomenal way to describe that because especially i would imagine in war when it's dark at least half of the day that's a lot of what you're doing is based on sound your sense of sound is probably heightened uh perpetually in a situation like this for sure yes oh, there's there's this beautiful beautiful passage at uh, the beginning of the the barrage where grossman writes splinters flung against bricks gave birth to small clouds of red dust then lost their lethal force and dropped quietly to the ground. As they flew through the air, each splinter made its own particular sound, depending on its weight, speed, and shape. One must have had curly, jagged edges, sounded like someone playing a comb or a kazoo. Another howled, ripping through the air like a large steel claw. A third, probably tube-shaped, somersaulted along as if puffing and splashing. I mean, these are like the passages that he writes in the, in the middle of the battle scenes that I'm like, this is really a distinguishing element of his prose for sure. Right. Yeah. 
Especially given that as that passage ends, that all these invisible pieces of irons, all their squalls and howls, all their lisps, whines and whispers, they were the voice of death that were killing dozens of men each second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was just, I mean, the way that he describes and has the sense for war is extremely poetic. Mm-hmm. Not romantic, but poetic. He does not romanticize war. It's a different thing. There's a remarkable lack of heroism in this, which I think is the exception of Vavilov's death. But I think that also is the exception that kind of proves the rule. Cameron, you don't know it's Vavilov. We don't know it's Vavilov. I am going to say... Tell me it's not Vavilov. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't think Grossman's pulling any Marvel moments. We're not not zooming out to see any... any, We're not doing, doing any bait and switches here. But for the most part, most of these characters are dying in rough, unexpected ways. Konikin has his moment of enlightenment towards his troops, and then he dies before he's ever able to really fully finish the thought. Um, mm-hmm. Kovalyov has this swell of emotion, this feel that I want to be remembered, that I want children, that I want people to to have feelings about my death. But he dies off screen, shot in the head while, he's, while we focus on his letter trying to be delivered to commanders who are also dead. Does Vavilov have any negative attributes? Vavilov? Yeah. I mean, no. Vavilov is a, is a different topic. I think that's like that's its own thing. I think that this is actually an extremely spiritual passage. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm talking about Kovalyov, but let's go to Vavilov because that's all I have to say about Kovalyov. Is just that his death is not his death. Is it's given great moments of like it's very char- characteristic of of Grossman to not focus on the moment of death, but to moment, focus on the life before it, which is what Kovalyov is given before he dies off screen. But Vavilov, that is, I think I agree with you. Not having heard what you're going to say yet, but let's go talk about Vavilov because this is the soldier we begin the war with, and it's the one we almost end, well, begin the war, begin the book with, and almost end the book with. So let's talk about Vavilov. Yeah, the, when I realized what Grossman was doing at the beginning of the book, when I knew when I started figuring out he's going to jump around, I thought, oh no, this guy's being used as a frame device, and that's not <laughs> good because I knew that this was going to happen, and I really hated knowing that ahead of time. I think that the moment before their death, they're all sitting around in a circle and it's almost like this sort of pseudo-confessional situation where they're talking about their lives uh, in the past tense as if they're not themselves, as if they're witnessing and speaking out of body almost. And when Vavilov goes to die, he doesn't, in a lot of ways, he doesn't really die because in a lot of ways, Vavilov is not a person. In a lot of ways, Vavilov is a spirit that is meant to be carried on. He's the embodiment of everything good that the Soviet Union is supposed to be, that the Soviet people are supposed to be, that the Soviet people are supposed to turn into eventually. And so this is why I think Vavilov does not get actually a physical death. This is why he gets uh, turned into dust, into spirit, essentially, because he's not actually ever really gone. It's almost, like you say, religious and like the 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 imagery being used is almost as if, I, I forget which prophet it is. It's Old Testament. I know it's not Isaac, but there are, there are some prophets who don't die. Instead, they're taken up to heaven on like a whirlwind, mm-hmm. which to me, There's, this I is- I can't remember what, if what this is Vavilov. I don't think it was. There's a lot of passages about people describing uh, like blood on their hands, which was very reminiscent of like that's, crucifixion that's imagery. That's yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was Vavilov. Um, but yeah, there's kind of a, you know, I think that- yeah, there's there's a lot of sort of religious or spiritual elements here that are actually quite interesting and actually somewhat jarring comparatively to the rest of the book. 
Right. It's even jarring in this in the context of this passage because so much of this yeah. is demythologizing combat. It's it, warfare isn't grand. You don't have your moment to show everyone how somber and cool you are. You just die. <laughs> right, right, right. Except for a it's, it is off. actually it's very Tolstoyan in a lot of ways. Yeah, he, he uses the same sort of thing uh, in right. one piece that we'll get into. But yeah, except Vavilov, right? Of course doesn't even really die his body even though it, it the text makes clear that yeah there is a bloody body there but it's as if it doesn't exist even despite you know the attention of all of the Wehrmacht soldiers firing at 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 uh, what was Vavilov yeah that's my analysis of Vavilov's death I think I agree I don't have anything to add that was that was a much better developed idea of what I was thinking about for him I, I just thought it was phenomenal I mean it caught me so off guard that one line there which line uh, the, the line of his actual death. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole scene caught me off guard. It was unfortunate, but yeah. And the fact that nobody sees it, right, either is, right? Yeah. Specifically mentioned that no one will ever know this fate, which is like an obsession of, of Grossman's that there are so many fates which are not known and not talked about. Yeah, and especially, right, like his wife, his kids, like, right, that nobody will know. And especially, like you mentioned, in that like semi-confessional circle towards the end, it's one entirely lacking of military bravado. It's just them thinking about, in, and maybe this is some feature of trying to say, like, this is the ideal person, someone who, even in the midst of combat, is not thinking of adrenaline, not thinking of combat, just thinking of, man, I wish I could be at home so I could fix that stove, you know, like we should be doing. Like, we should be focusing on the, the aspects of life which are life-giving rather than combat, which is inherently destructive. Right. And the thrill is thrill. It's 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 contrasted, I should say, against one of the most brutal scenes in the book, which even though it doesn't actually lay out what's happening, it's heavily implying and, and more or less showing you that like like people are being killed with bricks and spades in the most brutal form of warfare it can possibly take. And against that, you create the small group of men who are bleeding out and dying literally as they sit in a hole and they talk about home and talk about just trying to fix a stove and that's what leads mm -hmm. them to cry finally yeah no it's a i'd say a fitting end for vilov i think he is kind of embodies this idea of sacrifice but not actually i think like you were kind of saying a lot of the people in the military in this book are portrayed as sort of wanting these grand gestures Right, they want that. They want the death that Vavilov has, mm -hmm. uh, but they are not really willing to embody those ideals in the sort of everyday of life. They're children, really. They 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 want that exciting death. They want that exciting life. Exactly. Vavilov yeah, exactly. is an old man. He just wants to go back to his family. Right. He right. Exactly. And so I think this is kind of the case of the right. Your true character shows when the situation arises. For most people, right, they don't embody this every day. This is not the death they're going to get. They're going to get the odd uh, mortar shell that explodes and a uh, piece of shrapnel hits them in the head and that's it. Not Vavilov. He does get his uh, his hero's death, if you will. Yeah. Still sad, though. Still very Maybe sad. Character. Such a good character. Okay, do you mind if I take us over? I want to talk about Senior Sergeant Lena Gnatyuk for a second. Yes. Because, okay, so this is something I've been thinking about nonstop since I read this. Because mm. first of all, for the most part, in terms of on the front line, like you mentioned, women do not get much agency or like internal life. So Natyok is so interesting because she has moments of 
so to speak, getting one over on Filyashkin, like asserting her own independence to him. And, and you know, keep in mind, this is like, I won't exactly call it feminist. It's like feminist from the 1940s, not for yeah. today. So that's that's a differentiation that should be made. Although, at the same time, like I mentioned, Alexandra Kollontai, our episode on on her work at the beginning of the episode, so definitely more conservative than even earlier eras. However, you know, we're working with the constraints of what we got, so we're going to call it <laughs> roughly feminist within this framework, not within a broader framework. You know, Ignacio has this moment of putting one over, so to speak, on Filiashkin as he's like trying to be this kind of paternal protective figure, and she rejects that, rejects this these overt symbols of femininity. And out of nowhere, kind of says, reject, um, like, even though it's no, she'd never be a mother, again, coming out of nowhere, says, that's fine. And like, this is the fate she accepts. And even she wouldn't even accept the gun from, or wouldn't even, wouldn't even say that uh, Filiashkin's gun he gave to her will be what she uses to kill herself. Uh, rather, she'll use her own revolver, which is contrasted against the immediate next scene where she goes and tries to apologize against, uh, against, apologize to uh, Kovalyov for sort of leaving him behind and then his rejection leads her to cry in the next scene which is, it, it exists so closely to her in her role as mother to these soldiers and also role as like kind of a wounded young person only 24 who who soon is to die and so that's already I think it's interesting to provide both a character like a character who has ups and downs it, it's like I love seeing this internal life that has its moments of victory and failure and this emotional uncertainty i think that's i think i love that complexity getting to the idea of mother and son that's something that stuck with me a lot because it's like weirdly not weirdly i guess not weird. It, it is a fairly i will say conservative conception of the relationship between women and men to conceive of like even a young woman as mothering to these old older older men who see no contradiction in this. It's also true in, say, Vera and uh, Spiridonov's relationship where Vera sees that Spiridonov at home in terms of like cooking or laundry is like a helpless child, which is not, I guess, portrayed in a critical way, but just kind of almost as if it's natural is the way it's portrayed in the book. It's it's in, I don't, I don't know if I have a ton to say about it. I'm not an expert in like in in feminist theory but this is an interesting contradiction between a character who i think earnestly is given the best uh complexity that grossman can give her but at the same time is subject to the same sort of it's not exactly like madonna horror complex but like this idea of the ideal form of a femininity or ideal form for women to be mother but in this case, being like that ideal form of mother, which is taken from her, she, she's portrayed as heroic is like, well, I accept that and I accept my harsh death. But then Vera later on, who is given that sense that that kind of motherhood by being pregnant and having that moment where it's not about her, it's about Spiridonov wanting to protect her, that that's like, it's it's a moment of hope in the way it's portrayed in the way that like, okay, so people are people, the Soviets are going to continue, babies are still going to be born. And I'm not going to say that's a bad thing because I, I can see why that can be a, a symbol of hope. But this place of of motherhood as hope itself in the sort of an ideal form of femininity. And I think I'm drawing also on a work that we're going to talk about in, a, in soon called the Sistine Madonna, where that plays a lot into Grossman's ideas of beauty and hope for the future. So it's, I don't know if I'm not, again, in a position to like give a great critique of it, but I think it's something to pay attention to in both the way he's, he does really well in portraying complex characters, but also, I'm not going to call it a limitation, but just the way he talks about femininity as hope, which is an interesting feature of beauty in his conception. But we'll talk about more of that, about that later. I don't know. What, if that what I think is interesting about 
Stalingrad, for one, is that for it to be modeled off of War and Peace is interesting. Mm -hmm. Because War and Peace in general is widely considered Tolstoy's last rah-rah family life sort of book where that's the ideal to be chased. Anna Karenina, of course, not at all. Not much on the family life to be uh, desired, observed, mimicked, right? It's the decay of the family. And so it's interesting that Grossman chooses a form that is so based on the family, really. I mean, I know that part of the reason that I'm sure he chose it is because he wanted to talk about war and also peace. But, I mean, he didn't necessarily need to preserve the family structure that he did, but he did. And it's a major and integral part to this. For me, the reason that I see motherhood as probably the most important aspect of the end of the book is simply just uh, its relation to time and everything. Time and progress and ideology, if you will. For the Soviet Union, right, you've always got to be moving forward. If you're not moving forward, you're not doing, you're just simply not doing socialism good. You're not doing it very well. I think that for World War II, it almost is this, it's a sense of great victory, but it almost takes the Soviets out of time because it kills this really uh, a massive amount. I mean, I think most people underestimate how many people died in the Soviet Union from this and what it actually looks like to lose an entire generation of young men. And right. A lot of women as well on the front. It almost takes you out of time, essentially. It's uh, disorienting, more or less. And so motherhood is what can put you back on that track to right, the sort of linear time. That is one interpretation that I have as to why I think he might think that that is important. But point taken as well from you. Yeah. Well, I think, and, I, uh, you know, it can, part of it is like, hey, 1940s feminism. Yeah. Well, I don't think these are contradictory, like approaching these from no, two different ways, no. because on one hand, you can also you can approach this from a like a feminist critique of experiencing the it's not exactly a nuclear family but like the traditional family structure as like the superior form or like the ideal form of any given person to aspire to but also you can also like you say understand the hopefulness of a society in which you could create a family in even if to the same degree that um for example although Ignacio takes pride in the fact that she's going to be dying for this cause and she will not be a mother we can take for example Krimov, who doesn't aspire to be a parent himself, but like looks forward to to raising his nephews and nieces and wants wants them around, wants a family unit. So it, it's you could also expand it out to broader view of family that this book has, and I won't say Grossman had, but in a way that like just having a family unit, not necessarily a traditional nuclear one, but one in which you've got your brothers and sisters and your nieces and nephews and all those people around you creating a big, happy family of sorts and in which you go do things together. It is seen as, as a positive, which is, I think, interesting for Grossman, who always had a very small family. It was very, you know, over, over the course of his life, it expanded during his marriages, but at least being raised, one was raised, raised in an extremely false small family unit himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also just think, like, on, this, on the level of just general world literature symbols i mean childbirth is usually good yeah yes this is true right hope purity even you have right this whole book which is about the psychological horror that war inflicts on people and for the first time in the book you have somebody who didn't have to go through that yeah right that's 
that's hope. You have somebody who has a hope for ideally a life where they don't have to go through that again. Right. But at the same time, I think this is interesting. One that's respected. When Kremov is approaching Stalingrad, he has this sense that this approach is always going to be something of, even if people don't know what happened here, they'll feel it. They'll feel the import. And I wanted to, I wanted to, I was thinking about that a lot, actually, as we approach this, because obviously Stalingrad, if you are familiar with its, its place in modern Russian, specifically culture, it has a mythical place. I mean, when we were in, when we were living in Russia, there were tons of movies still being made about this. I mean, not that like that's unique. Still, other countries still make tons of movies about World War II. But like the, as if you've ever read anything that uh, Dr. Garner has written, especially some articles, which I'll link in the show notes or his, his book, which is already out, Stalingrad Lives. And it was not out when we, we, when we interviewed him, but you should definitely read Stalingrad Lives, Stalingrad Lives or Stalingrad Lives about the way that this has become myth in modern modern culture, modern Russian culture, and has become the unimpeachable myth of like heroism and all that. It's interesting that Grossman's perception of it as myth is not one of heroism. It's one of, I would say, deep solemnity, not one of like celebration, but one of just something important happened here that when people are down the line, he portrays them as celebratory, people having fun, going out, just driving down the road. But when they pass here, they sense something important occurred. And that's that's what it is. It's it's a, It's like a I don't know exactly how to say it. It's not a moment of patriotism as it is a moment of respect, and which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting it's an interesting approach to talking about the importance of the city, which I would say I think is very, very different from the way that Stalingrad as a cultural artifact has actually expressed itself in modern Russian culture. Yeah, the respect is not the word I would use. Yeah. No, not in the way that it's actually yeah, broadly, no. No. I feel like to me, respect implies some sort of level of individuality, which is what he's going for, right? Yeah. He's not talking about some perversion of a government. He's talking about the individuals that comprise. When he says there are specific echoes, it's not the Soviets, it's not ideas, it's just the marching of the boots, the the soldiers who went to go die namelessly, Mm -hmm. which is what where they respect. Yeah. It's the Vavilovs of the world that died. Mm -hmm. Right, those ideal Soviet men that die. Yeah, and I, again, to not just bring it back to him perpetually, but like it is interesting. Of course, he's the one that dies and makes right the ultimate sacrifice. But presumably, there are many others that survive that are you right don't live up to that ideal. Right, something to think about. Speaking of those who who don't live up to the ideal, let's go back to the German perspective for a second and. Like a weirdly, uh, a, a weirdly not like positive, but Leonard plays the character who is like has sympathetic knowledge in a way. In that, again, we I, I won't don't want to talk about this too much because I think we really covered this last time in the way that Grossman talks about the Wehrmacht forces as not a monolith, but rather as a, a you know group of people who've got different beliefs and some of whom want to persecute the others for seeing them as lesser. You know, even within their own own army, they're cannibalizing each other. And Leonard yeah. here plays the almost sympathetic obtainer or haver of knowledge, wherein he knows that Stumpfa, the love, beloved SS man, is writing denunciations of Letica and Vogel to other officers, because as, as we know in the last chapter, he sees them as parasites and he wants to destroy their presence in, in you know, good Nazi society. They think there's comradeship here, and Bach mentions, oh, look look at the comradeship there. That's so wonderful to see that among our troops. And Leonard knows that that doesn't exist, that Stumpfa wants Letica and Leonard to be taken by the SS, whatever that means for them. 
Yeah, I think there's a a lot emphasized, especially in this last part, about the unimportance, really, of rank in the Soviet military, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially kind of when push comes to shove in a very extreme sense that... Right. When when Grossman starts chapters talking about the change in the chain of command and then immediately qualifies it by saying, oh, well, these people didn't really know that they were now in charge. Right. It, mm. it doesn't matter who's in charge. Doesn't matter who's a higher rank. It just matters that everyone is kind of working towards that common goal. The Nazis are consumed by these sort of petty incidents of trying to gain favor or, you know, whatever they're trying to do. And this is not the the concern, of course, of the Red Army. Yeah. At least not now. He does say later, you know, people will debate, right, who held the more important bridge or point or building or whatever. Yeah. And that does, right, that is is in some ways human nature, right? But But at the same time- In the battle itself. Exactly. Well, well, like, she gets that gift from the American women and says, I already have a uniform. What do you so I have for stockings and bathrobes and all this? And she, all the Soviets say, yeah, no, what, why, why would they give us this? On the other hand, not all the Wehrmacht, but Stumpfa, upon finding the exact same gift, is overjoyed. And his last place in the book is him being super excited that he's finding like totally brand new, unused items that he can presumably sell at some point. Whereas yeah. the Soviets have no need for that and all decide that it's beneath them. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Stumpfa is like this rat. Whereas even Ledica and Vogel just look at the bodies and say, I don't, there's nothing for us here. But Stumpfa, doesn't, he's checking every single body. He's finding things which a lot of the things he finds mean stuff to us as readers. We know the chocolate bars of Avilov's. We know that's intended for his daughter. We know the razor he finds, I believe, is Kovalyov's. We know so much about and, and what these items yeah. mean. He throws away things that meant everything to these Soviet soldiers, all the things that were from their siblings and for their children. And then he finds just some some goods, which mean nothing to them, and they try to throw away. And he thinks this is perfect. I Finally, I can I can find something I can sell. Yeah, it's really, it's a moral condemnation, not only of the Nazis, but also of the Americans. Mm-hmm. That what the Americans send mean more to Nazis than to Soviets. Yeah, yeah. Really, which is kind of a sick burn, I mean, <laughs> woven in there, if we're going to be honest about it. <laughs> yeah. And he's not the only one that does this. Solzhenitsyn yeah. does it in the first circle uh, in his kind of, well, not his clever way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just say, it forms the basis of one of the stories in the novel. It's not like a... Yeah under the surface sort of thing right. yeah um but yeah americans am i right i just wanted to end on the fact that i really enjoyed this yeah well yeah let's uh, let's end on that we okay it has been over three months we've been reading this novel thinking about it reading about it reading secondary sources recording about it editing about it posting about it where do you stand now just do you have any if, if if any thoughts can be had after such a big novel and such a long time to think about it what do you think I think this could be probably my favorite novel I've ever read. It could strong. be up there. Yeah, it is strong. We'll see if Life and Fate can dethrone it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really glad that we decided to do this series and that we decided to just do it this way. Right. And I'm going to be honest, I think we could have taken more time on it because every episode I have had passages that we did not get to talk about. Yes. Yep. And I didn't even really talk about secondary literature because there was so much just on my own readings that I had to talk about. Right. And we also didn't have guests, which actually was kind of fun this time. It was nice just to be able to sit with it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do, how do you feel? I am. I feel similarly. I'm glad we got to sit with this over the course of a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, in no other situation in my life would I have I've sat with this novel for so long. I would have just read it and been like, that was cool. It moved on. But I'm really glad we got to sit with this and talk about it piece by piece, even though we could have done way longer for the three, a little over three months we did, because this is, I, I like you, I don't know if this is not my favorite thing I've read, but it is, oh, it is definitely one of my favorite character pieces I've ever read. Absolutely. The way that- It's just, yeah, yeah. yeah. The way that Grossman has- about it. Yeah, the, the Grossman's approach to writing characters is one of my favorite. It's, there are many books, I, at the same time, all right, all right, let me level with you. At the same time as I've been reading this, the book series I've been reading the most is The Siege of Terra which is a Warhammer series. And it's just about like, I want to go into the, the story of Warhammer in here because it's it's not worth it being talked about. When but does Warhammer start? Like the year? Yeah, like how, how long? What, can you give me the backstory of the universe? Like a quick brief version? I'm sure it has a quick, really quick brief version, right? <laughs> the, the story <laughs> of the, the, yeah, it's like roughly, I don't know, you can start in the year 30,000. Like I pretend Star Trek happened and then Star Trek went really bad. And then 10,000 years onward, think of like, Star Trek is like the Roman Empire. And then you've got like the Byzantine Empire of the Warhammer 30k universe trying to maintain. And I think mm-hmm. personally, I think the great joke of the universe is that they were always the failing empire. No one acknowledges that. That might just be my interpretation, but... <laughs> So I think it's funny that 30, 40K, the, the 10,000 years in the future of Warhammer, Warhammer 40K, as it's called, is like, oh, but we could be the shining empire of, of Warhammer 30K. But I think the great joke is the Warhammer 30K was always the degenerate empire of post-actually great period of humanity. But that's neither here nor there. And this has to do with Grossman because... Because the Siege of Terra is about a long protracted battle, which everyone knows in the end they're going to die for. It gets very bleak as it goes on, as things get worse for them. And it's been interesting to see actually a lot of, I think some of these authors are surprisingly talented. And it's been interesting to see, I will say, devastating end warfare in fiction versus devastating end warfare, which, yeah, this is also fiction, but it was influenced by a lot of real life. And this was like fiction, wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. So I I think it's interesting to, it was interesting, not specifically because of the universe, but because of the way that this sort of warfare is conceptualized in fiction versus how mm. it's conceptualized by someone who was there. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been really thinking a lot about, as over these months, about how we conceptualize all-encompassing warfare versus all-encompassing warfare as written by people who were fighting in all-encompassing warfare. And mm-hmm. the way, the, the sense of humanity that Grossman manages to bring in. And I, I will I will think from, from uh, you know, talking about it from feminist perspective, there's a lot to be said about, you know, motherhood as, as like the highest form of femininity. However, you get where it's coming from in this, I, to a certain degree, of the continuation so. of the Soviet society, that there will still be children being born. There will be a next generation uh, to, you know, as compared to the generation that's currently being lost and fighting for this. And I've just, I've just I, enjoyed yeah. having time to stay with this. And I'm really, really glad we did it, like you said, the way we did. This is, I think, one of the most impactful pieces of literature I've ever read, simply because we, you and I have so much time to read it, to think about it, to just go over it. And having that time to really think about it and analyze it has been super impactful. And I, I'm super glad we did this. Yeah, me too. It feels like the good old days mm-hmm. uh, before guests would come on our show. didn't <laughs> know who we were. Yeah, that uh, we don't love our guests. Yeah. We do love every single individual guest who comes on and they're dear friends of ours. Uh, but just being able to just spitball ideas and grow them over the course of many episodes is nice. The only problem that I have with guests sometimes mm. okay. is 
that a lot of times they will talk about like their research right that is pertaining to what we're reading which is great and i want to hear about it however when it's the first time that i've read something sometimes like for this it would have just been like far too much Um, right because research tends to be uh based on the assumption you've read the whole thing and can understand where they're going and coming from and you know if you have someone on in part three uh who's referencing stuff right later on it you know it's going to be impossible for you to understand that sort right. of argument really but i like honestly i would be so willing to have somebody who does grossman research on the podcast just do an episode on talking about grossman well that's a great transition matt because i gotta ask you is it i think so because so okay. we, i think we have mostly mm-hmm. talked about what we want to talk about so what oh yeah ideally will be our next episode so next episode if i can get my scheduling butt in gear we are going to be doing an interview with the translator of stalingrad life and fate and uh, quite frankly just so many works just an absolutely phenomenal and incredibly well respected translator we're gonna be talking with robert chandler uh if all goes well mostly on my end that is to say sending emails and scheduling uh but i am incredibly excited to sit down and chat for a little bit about stalingrad and about grossman and just about translation in general it's Mm -hmm. super interesting to me yeah and i want to give extra props to matt for correctly saying robert chandler's name when i wrote raymond chandler again in the script (laughs) yeah i thought it was embarrassing when you wrote it but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i i haven't even read that much raymond chandler i don't know he has this pull over my mind every time i try to talk about robert chandler (laughs) he has a sway over you i don't i'm not even certain i've read any raymond chandler i just know he exists (laughs) that's even funnier (laughs) before we let you go we just wanted to extend a super sincere thank you to all of you who are still listening we were really concerned that we were going to lose all of our listeners after doing the same book for a little over three months a little over five months on the original time scale so for those of you for the for the hundreds of you who still stick around really honestly truly thank you and we want to extend a really Really sincere thank you to all of our patrons. It is thanks to our patrons that we are able to release on the schedule that we do. For those of you who are just enjoying for free, um, you know, thank a patron if you ever see them in real life, because I imagine you all know their faces naturally. Without their support, we would not be able to uh, pay an editor to edit some of the episodes per month to make sure we stay on the schedule. So really, for all of you who are listening, thank you. And to all of those who support us and make sure that we can release on the schedule we do, really, truly Thank you, and we hope to keep doing fun stuff like this for as long as we can. Okay, let's extend the thank yous. Let's start it off with Jacob, Elizabeth, Jay, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Uh, thank you all so much for being around and, and um, 
yeah, grad school, as Matt often tells you, does not pay very well. And podcasting, especially right now, is not free. Uh, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to help keep the show running at the pace we do, take a look on our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>